you've got your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 21. Uh, We're going to be reading uh, verses 12 to 32. So Exodus chapter 21, starting at verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wood for wound, and stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Uh, be good to keep your Bible open there at Exodus uh, 21. Uh, just to sort of let you know where things are going preaching-wise uh, over the next little while, um, in about five or six weeks, um, we are going to start a smorgasbord of preaching and preachers. And so as you're probably aware, I've got a, a few months long service leave, an annual leave, uh, taking from mid-May. And during that time, um, a whole smorgasbord of preachers and preaching uh, from RTC students and lecturers and other preachers around the place. So uh, we can look for, you can look forward uh, to that. Um, until that time, uh, we are going to spend the next four weeks uh, looking at some of the Old Testament laws uh, that we find in Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. Uh, I got that all wrong. That's all right. Uh, you know what I'm saying. In the first five books uh, of, of the Old Testament. Um, I thought I'd just do something nice and easy 
to slip away into long, sleeve, long service leave with. Uh, and so this is what I chose. And uh, by about Wednesday morning, I was regretting it um, deeply. So let's pray uh, because we really need God to be at work um, today. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, and we do thank you for the parts of it which are harder to understand. And we thank you for that because it makes us more reliant on you um, to teach us and to explain things to us by your Holy Spirit. So, Lord God, we, had asked that, we ask that you would do that now, this morning, um, that you would be the one speaking to us and you would give us wisdom and insight and knowledge. You would train our lives so that we would be equipped for serving you uh, in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, looking online the other day, I noticed that there is a new TV series which has just started in the United States. Uh, I don't think it's here yet. Uh, it's probably coming. It's a series called Living Biblically. Um, it's a TV show based on a book from 2007 called A Year of Living Biblically. When the author, uh, after a trauma in his life, decided to see whether there was something really in the Bible's way of living. And so he decided that for a whole year, he would live according to all the laws and the commandments in the Bible. Not just the easy ones, all of them. Old and New Testament. He did, he did a lot of research in order to do this. He talked to Bible scholars, he talked to theologians, he talked to pastors. He talked to rabbis, he talked to imams, trying to understand what it is that the Bible says and what, how it teaches us to live. Now, you and I hear that and we go, how on earth do you do that? I mean, how do you live this way in our society today? And also we say, why would you? You don't need to. Now, whether that's instinctively or something that we've, we've delved into deeply, we know that we don't have to live by all of the laws and the commands and the rituals and the festivals that we find, particularly in the Old Testament. And if we look around, it's kind of obvious that we're not doing that, isn't it? We're not meeting in a tent made out of the hides of sea cows. Um, we haven't had uh, sacrifice, goat sacrifice here for I don't know how long. And I can't remember the last time we had a good stoning um, as a church. It's obvious then that we don't live by all of the commands in the Old Testament. But on the other hand, we are reluctant to throw it all out completely. We know that there are things in here which are relevant and are important for us. This is more than just history. It's more than interesting ways that God dealt with people in the past. God had this recorded not just for them, but for us as well. So often we find ourselves caught in the middle of those two things, don't we? On the one hand, we know there is stuff there that we don't, don't have to do. And on the other hand, we know that there are things in there which does have relevance for us. And then we come to a passage like this one, and we think, what on earth am I meant to do with that? 
I don't have an ox. I got rid of my slaves a little while ago. And I'm more of a lover than a fighter. So what does this have to do with me? Well, over the next four weeks, we want to spend a little bit of time looking at some of these Old Testament laws to think through that. How relevant are they for us and how do they apply for us to us today? I'm not sure if you you saw on Facebook, our church Facebook page, but earlier this week I posted a link to an article which addresses this directly, and I think it's quite helpful. It makes the case that there are two ways in which Old Testament laws and rituals and festivals relate to us as Christians today. The first way is that they point us to Jesus, and they help us understand his work more completely. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It refers to God's law as a shadow and as Christ as the reality. And so there are some parts of the Old Testament law where we realize that this is is really obvious. The Old Testament law is relating to festivals and sacrifices and the tabernacle. They are the shadow of which Jesus is the reality. And so we read them and study them, not so that we can do them, because it helps us understand more completely, more deeply, who Jesus is and what he has done. And at the back end of this series, we're going to have a look at two passages or two parts of the law which which do that very obviously. But there is another way in which this Old Testament law relates to us as well. We realize that God says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And when the New Testament talks about all Scripture, it's mostly talking about the Old Testament. It's breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's law written for us is useful and helpful for us. Not as a way of impressing God with our actions, but a way of responding to God in love for his mercy shown to us. Exactly the way that it was given and intended in the first way. By the God who rescues to his redeemed people, so that we might respond to him. Now, I think one of the helpful ways to look at the law in that regard, and this passages like this one in particular, is to view them as case studies in the Ten Commandments. So in the Ten Commandments, we have God giving ten laws, commandments, words, for his people to follow. And in the following books of the Bible, which particularly deal with law, we see how God is applying those commandments to Israel in their situation, going through the desert and about to enter into the promised land. And so as we look at them, we look at them through Christ, 
through Jesus and the New Testament to see what Jesus has done with this law. And then we apply it to our situation, 21st century, Australia, living as God's people in a non-Christian society and how then they might apply to us. And we're going to do that next week and we're going to do that this week with this passage here in Exodus chapter 21, verses 12 to 32. Now, there are a lot of things that are covered in here. There is slaves, pregnant women, there's ox, there's parenting. And we might wonder, what is all this random collection of stuff doing together? But you've already noticed that as we read through it, there is a common thread that is going through. And that is the thread of killing and injury. And so what we have in verses 12 to 32 is a case study or case studies in the commandment, you shall not murder. This is God applying that commandment to Israel, about to enter into the promised land and all a whole lot of variety of situations that they will find themselves in. Let's start then by going through and seeing the different things that God commands them. And we're starting there in verses 12 to 14, where God states it very obviously in verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. He states the commandment, not murdering, and he states the punishment. But then in the next couple of verses, he also explains that there is the difference between willful murder and accidental killing, which we would call manslaughter. And he makes a difference between the penalties for both. Those who commit manslaughter are not to be put to death, but in the following verses we read that there are consequences even for accidental killing. Then we jump down to verses 15 to 17, where there are commandments relating to the treatment of the vulnerable. Have a look there. First in verse 15 and 17, there is the treatment of parents, but not murder. Verse 15, there is striking parents. And in verse 17, there is cursing parents. And sandwiched in the middle of that is a commandment about abduction and selling people into slavery. Now we might, might wonder, what on earth are these things doing together? And why do all three of them carry the penalty of death? I want to suggest that they're there because God is giving instruction for the treatment of the most vulnerable within society. God is protecting and preserving society by putting strong deterrence against mistreating those who are most vulnerable. Who gets captured and sold as a slave? Women and children, most likely. And so when it talks about the striking and the cursing of parents, it's not talking about the four-year-old who chucks a hissy fit, who has a little tantrum and lashes out with, to mum and dad and has to get put to death. It's not that. It's about the younger, newer generation pushing aside and squashing down the older generation so that they can take control and they can take power. See what God is doing here? 
He is protecting and preserving society by protecting family life, protecting the elderly, and protecting the most vulnerable and the weakest within Israelite society. Then we jump to verses 16 to 19, where we read about the penalty for fighting and causing injury. And we see that killing, or that shall not murder, goes beyond just putting someone to death, killing someone, it involves injury as well. But injury comes with appropriate punishment and penalty. It is proportionate to the damage that is done. And so there's payment for loss of income and for treatment to get better again. Then in verses 20 to 27, we jump into another section which deals with another, other groups of vulnerable people within society. First of all, there is slaves in verses 20 and 21, and it goes back to slaves in verses 26 to 27. And here we see that there is penalty for the killing and the injuring of slaves. In fact, the same or similar penalty and punishment for the killing of non-slaves. And then sandwiched in the middle of that are penalties for injuring an unborn child or the mother who is pregnant and the child then is injured. And again, the penalties are the same for the living, for the born child as the unborn child. Again, God is in these laws protecting the most vulnerable and open to abuse in society, slaves and unborn children. And then finally, down in verses 28 to 32, God starts talking about ox, oxen. And what happens when your ox gores another person? And then we see that there is a penalty not just imposed on the ox, but on the owner of that ox. The owner can't just stand back and say, it's my ox that did it, I'm not accountable. The person, the owner, is accountable for what their possession and their property does to men and women, to children, and to slaves. Now, that was a bit heavy, and I'll move through that, that pretty quickly. But we've got it now, don't we? We all know what to do. Keep your ox tied up and away from children uh, in the backyard, and we can move on. Well, in order for us to move from there to today, we're going to have to do a couple of things. The first thing we're going to have to do is we're going to have to draw some principles out of here. Why are these laws here? What can we glean from this about the way that God would have his people act and live in a way that honors him? Let me start then by drawing three principles out of here. And the first one is this, is that the command, you shall not murder, you shall not kill, is broader than just killing, isn't it? So one of the dangers we have when we read the Ten Commandments is that we read through it and go, Tick, yeah, no, I haven't done that, I haven't done that, I haven't done that. I haven't killed anybody, therefore I haven't murdered. This was the issue that that rich young ruler had when he came to Jesus in the New Testament. You remember that? And he says, all of these commandments I have kept since I was a child. How could he say that? How could he do that? Well, he'd read, do not murder, and he hadn't murdered anyone. What's happening here? God is saying murder is wider than just killing. It involves injury. It involves careless behavior which injures others. 
It involves striking. It even involves cursing. And then we realize that Jesus actually has made this very clear and even broadens this even further in Matthew chapter 5. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. What, what, does he go, what does he go on to say? He says, I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother, anybody who insults his brother, anybody who says you fool to his brother, is liable to the hell, the fire of hell. Jesus makes it even, even broader than this. He says it's broader than just our careless actions and our hitting. It's even the attitudes of our hearts. And so if we want to live in a way that honors God, that obeys him and lives for him, keeping the commandment, you shall not murder, goes wider than just killing people. Now, when we understand that Jesus says this, it, it does two things. Firstly, it reminds us that Jesus hasn't abolished the law. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes it very clear that he hasn't done away with the law and we can now simply do whatever we want. Jesus has come to fulfill the law and show the proper right way in which we are meant to obey and honor God. And it's broader than just our actions of killing. But secondly, it reminds me and it highlights to us that we are guilty of murder ourselves. When it's more than just killing, we, by our actions, our carelessness, our injury of others, even our thoughts, are guilty of murder. And so when Jesus suffers and dies for sin, when he pays the penalty for sin on the cross, he doesn't just pay for the big ticket items that I've done. He pays for my sin of murder as well. My carelessness, my hatred, my cursing of others, he's paid for that as well. Second principle that we want to draw out of these commandments in Exodus 21 is that all life is valuable and precious to God and therefore to us. You see, we might rightfully ask the question, why does God care about the way that people treat each other? Why does God care if we go around insulting each other, if we do damage to each other? We're all sinful people anyway, and we can all take a few knocks. Why does God actually care about the way that people are treated? But then we remember that all people are created by God and are created in his image. That gives all people, all life, value and dignity that needs to be respected. And notice the breadth, the breadth of people that these commandments address. It's not just men but it's highlighted over and over, men and women. It's not just men and women who are free, but it is slaves, both men and women. It's not just slaves and adults, it's children 
and its unborn children as well. All life has value and dignity because it is created by God and in his image. Now, in one sense, we read this and say, well, of course. Of course. I mean, isn't God even better off saying, don't have slaves? Then this is how you should treat your slaves? Doesn't that more, more dignity and, and, and more value in, in doing that? And therefore, we have, to, we, have to, we have to put this in its context, that God is putting protection in place for a group of people that existed in Israelite society and was a, in some ways, was a, even slavery itself could exist to protect people and protect them from further abuse. But we also need to then translate that and, and understand that in our culture, in our society. There are still people in our world today who live in slavery. And this is not justification for that. We should also seek their freedom and justice for them. And then think about others who are addressed here, such as unborn children, and realize that they were a long way to go in seeking their protection and their safety as well. And that leads on to the third and final principle I want to draw from these commandments. And that is that we must work to protect life. You see, these, these commandments are not just in the negative. You shall not kill is not just a prohibitive commandment. Don't go out and murder. Don't go out and injure somewhere. It is proactive as well that those who serve, love, follow Jesus are to protect life also. We're to be proactive in protecting the lives, particularly of the most vulnerable and the weakest within the community and in the wider society. In the way that we act, in the way that we own our possessions, in the way that we conduct ourselves, we are to be conscious of the way in which our actions and our property impacts and affects the lives of others around about us. All right. In order to draw this to a close, I want to take these principles and then now apply them to three areas of of life for us. There could be 10, there could be 20. I want to narrow in on, on three areas of life where these commandments can apply to us. And the first one is in the area of physical violence. And I think it's really clear from these commandments that physical violence has no place in the life and in the community that loves and follows Jesus. Now, in some regards, that might be, might be really, really obvious. But in other regards, it, it needs to be spelled out. Now, there are, there are occasions where physical force is appropriate. If we are protecting a life, our own or somebody else's, yeah, of course, there's a place where physical force is appropriate. Sometimes governments go to war, and in cases where there's protection of vulnerable people, Physical force and violence is justified. But apart from those exceptions, physical violence has no place in the Christian community. And so when we 
when we play physical sports, contact sports, we play within the rules of that sport. And we play hard and we play physically, but we play fair. And we step back from the retaliatory jabs and niggles and the things that are outside the accepted rules of the game. And we don't engage in that part of it. It means kids here, boys and girls, when mum and dad say, don't hit your brother or your sister, don't retaliate, they say that because God wants us to live in a way that doesn't cause injury to other people. He wants us to recognize that other people are created by God and are in his image and to hurt them, to hit them, is to dishonor the God who created them. It means there's no place in our lives for a brawl, for taking a problem outside and solving it that way. If we have anger and frustration, we need to find other healthy ways of dealing with that other than physical violence. Secondly, we need to be careful and mindful of our actions and our property that they do not endanger the lives of other people. Now, most of us here uh, will admit that speed limits are a good thing, don't they? And most of us here are motivated to keep the speed limit by, by good causes most of the time. But sometimes, when we're running late, the person in front of us is just driving really, really slow, we like to think that we can bend that a little bit because it suits us a bit better. This is saying we don't just obey the speed limit because it's the law of the land or we might get a fine. We obey speed limits because we are conscious that our actions and our property don't endanger the lives of others. Same going with drink driving. It's not just the worry that there might be the cop around the corner who's going to breathalyze us. It's because it's dangerous and it endangers the lives of other people. It's why we don't text and drive. Not because we might have a praying into a fence and it's going to cost us, but because in doing that, we are endangering the lives of other people. We need to be careful about our property, our cars. We don't drive around with bald tires, not just because we might get injured by it, but because we are mindful of what our car then, the damage it might do to somebody else. We make sure we are driving vehicles that are in good repair and are not likely to cause an accident which is going to damage another person. When we have somebody over to our house, we make sure that our house is in good repair and there's not something around there that's going to accidentally electrocute a child or cause damage or, or something like that because we are conscious about not causing injury to other people who are created in the image of God. It means that if we're the boss of a business, or there are people who are responsible to us in, in a business situation, on a work site, 
we are conscious that we don't put them in danger in the things that we ask them to do. Because we are being proactive in protecting life and valuing it created in the image of God. And thirdly and finally, uh, we are, as followers of Jesus, to be champions of the cause of the weak and the vulnerable in society. We are to be on the front line of standing up, protecting the physical and emotional well-being of those who are most vulnerable amongst us. Now, there are, there are a lot of things about the Me Too movement uh, that, we, that we might be uncomfortable with or we might like. But there are parts of the Me Too movement that, that we should be thankful for and that we should applaud. We should applaud that women feel safe to speak out against cases of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. It should be safe for women to put their hand up and say, that's been me. The heightened awareness about the way that we speak about other people, whether they're people from other cultures or whether they're people of the opposite sex, that's important and it's helpful for us because in no way should we degrade other people in our language and the way that we talk about people or the jokes that we make. If we have an opportunity to help women and children who are suffering domestic violence in a way that means that they don't have to go back to an environment where they feel unsafe, as followers of Jesus, we should take that opportunity and provide that relief and provide that safety for people. It's a pain sometimes to have a child protection policy in the life of the church. Sometimes it seems like all this paperwork, all these meetings, all these extra layers of accountability. But it's important. And we do it not just because there's been a royal commission and not just because the government says we have to, but we do it because we are conscious about protecting children within our community. And we fulfill it and we do it because it's important. It means that we need to increasingly think about the way that elderly people and even our own parents are treated and the way that they have the way that care is done for them. Increasingly this is becoming a vulnerable area in our society and we in our own church and in our own families and as those who want to protect the lives of the most vulnerable we need to think about how we are doing that and how we are responding to issues and concerns of abuse. The fate of the unborn child still continues to be a concern for us. We live in a society and a culture which devalues that life. In fact, it calls it not life at all. We need to continue to stand firm and clear that an unborn child is a life created by God and in his image and has value and dignity and respect and deserves to be protected. You see, in all of these things, we are saying something about life. All life and every life. We're saying that it's not a commodity. 
It's not easy come, easy go. Life is precious and it is valuable precisely because it belongs to God. We say something not just about life, but we say something then about the God who created it. That he loves life. He gives life. He's restoring life through his son Jesus. We're saying something about the new kingdom that God is bringing on earth. A restored kingdom where life is valuable and it's protected and it's cared for because it's not our own, because it belongs to the God who gave it to us. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we want to thank you that you are the giver, the protector, and the redeemer of life. Thank you, Lord, that you give life as a wonderful, precious gift in your image belonging to you. Help us, Lord, as your people, as those who follow you, as those who have been saved by Christ, to value and treasure life as you do. Lord God, where where we are guilty of devaluing life, through our actions, through our words, through even our attitudes, we pray, Lord, that you would convict us. Show us again, Lord, how precious life is. Show us how we can honor you with it with our own lives and in the way that we treat one another. And we ask, Lord, that in doing this, your church, your kingdom, would stand as a kingdom of light in a dark world. A kingdom where life is treasured because it comes from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.